Moncrief on News Talk. Brought to you by Avant Money. Think you're getting the best value from your bank? Think again. Jonathan DeBurke Butler joins us once again. Good afternoon, Jonathan. Sean, how are you getting on? Uh, right, okay, now uh, we're, we're going to go to Australia first. And uh, some resonances from a, a, a story here, but at the same time, this is, uh, this is uh, quite tragic. It's about a catfishing case. It is. A catfishing case that's been going on in Victoria is where the case is being heard anyway. And it's been going on for the best part of 10 years, would you believe, this is when a woman by the name of Lydia Abdel Malik, she's now 32, started her catfishing by going online and setting up a fake Facebook account as Lincoln Lewis. Now, are you a fan of Home and Away, Sean? I am not. No. Okay, well, if for those people who are fans of Home and Away, and there are many of them in Ireland, uh, Lincoln Lewis is an actor in that particular soap opera, and he's very well known in Australia. He's one of those good-looking, blondie-type individuals. All right. right, okay. Um, so, um, he, th- this woman, Lydia Abdel Malik, set herself up as Lincoln Lewis on Facebook, and she started contacting women online, okay? And there are she has several victims but we'll we'll cover the case of one in particular just to give an example okay. right so this particular woman her name was uh, her name was Emma or her given name in the court uh, papers anyway in the court documents was Emma she was an international flight aden- attendant and back in 2011 a few weeks after a breakup she received a Facebook request from someone she believed to be this Lincoln Lewis chap right now between the jigs and the reels they got to know each other and a romantic relationship started online so they began to exchange pictures that were would be would be compromising okay, okay effectively yeah. intimate pictures right so as time went on this particular woman Emma she began to get suspicious when in classic catfishing style Lincoln Lewis uh, wasn't able to meet up with her ever all yeah. right and so time went on and she contacted a friend who had a friend who knew Lincoln Lewis and between the two of them Emma and Lincoln figured out that something else was going on Right. And Lincoln Lewis would later testify in court about everything that happened. Mm -hmm. All right. It didn't stop there. When Emma confronted Lydia Abdel Malik about what she was doing, the the fake Lincoln Lewis came back with another name and claimed with another name and claimed to be Michael Smith. They continued the relationship. Right. Inexplicably, they continued the relationship. And then he came back after and he revealed that he wasn't, in fact, Michael Smith. He was another guy called Danny Mack, who's another well-known actor, apparently. Mm. And that's when the penny began to drop. Right. right? And that's when Lincoln Lewis and Emma, sorry, sort of came together and, uh, you know, figured out what was going on. All right. So all very confusing. Anyway. In the long run, she was caught because of another woman who was caught up in this particular scam. Um, the police basically got this other woman, Jess is her name, to get money out of uh, Lydia Abdel Malik, or, or sorry, to give money to Lydia Abdel Malik. Abdel Malik went and picked it up in a bank. CCTV footage picked her up, and she was caught. And that's when she was first convicted, uh, went on trial and convicted back in 2019. So this was an appeal that she has lost, right? And in the meantime, in that first initial case, the poor woman, who's known as Emma, actually committed suicide. She had given evidence in court at the first trial, but she was so upset and, and it was such an ordeal for her 
that she ended up committing suicide in uh, 2018. My word. And did Abdelmanik try to extort any money out of Emma? Well, this we don't know. So there's lots of hole. There's lots of holes because it's been widely covered in Australia. Yeah. And there was all sorts of TV reports. I don't know if she tried to get money out of Emma. I think an awful lot of what she did to Emma was psychological. So she was sending her, according to her family, sort of something like 60 texts a day. And by the end of it all, even before the trial, she was absolutely broken. Now, Abdelmanik went and appealed and she's now lost the appeal and Initially, she was sentenced to just under two years in prison, mm. right? Um, and she's now lost the appeal. Um, but some of the some of the interactions, you know, between the prosecution and herself were absolutely mind-boggling. I mean, she was played tapes of her own voice, and she denied that it was her. Uh, serious, serious issues here. Um, um, yeah. D- 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 during the course of that trial, do you know, did anybody refer her for for a psychological assessment of any sort? I, I don't know if she was. And and to be honest, it's a great question. But again, judging by the interactions th- between herself and particularly the judge, because the judge basically says you're lying through your teeth mm. and what you're doing here is cruel. Um, and uh, so that, 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 I don't know if she was sent uh, for, for, for a psychological assessment. I don't think so, because she denied that it was her. That's astounding. Right, uh, Chile, we're going to go to next. And uh, this is a, a, a story about forced sterilizations. Yeah, a, a sad story about a woman by the name of Francisca. And again, it's one of those stories that ran for a very long time. Again, it, this was not her real name. Um, back in 2002, while she was pregnant with her first child and she was only 20 years of age, she was diagnosed with HIV. OK, um, she went on and she had the child. Uh, she was given a cesarean section. And during that time, she was under uh, anaesthetic. OK, mm. and the doctors decided to perform a surgical sterilization. And it was done on the grounds that they felt it would be irresponsible for a HIV positive woman to give birth to any more children. So they took that decision by themselves to go ahead with the procedure. Now, when she woke up, she was told by a nurse what had happened to her. And she later discovered, and she was from a poor background, so she wasn't necessarily brilliantly educated Mm. and didn't have that much access to information. But she should have been given information prior to going in and she should have given, you know, a a written statement saying that it was okay for this to go ahead. Mm. But she didn't, of course. Um, In 2007, she filed a criminal complaint and that was kicked out a year later. The doctor said that she had given her verbal consent. Not true at all. And then again, the case went back, uh, back in 2011, I think it was. It went to the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights. It was brought on her behalf by two NGOs. Uh, and it took all of this time since 2011 up to now for the state to come up with an agreement. Uh, they came up with a settlement, basically, and to issue an apology last week. Right. Okay. One might infer that if um, that particular doctor or that particular hospital had done it once, that perhaps they've done it many times. This is exactly what she said in her statement when she came. Now, the statement was read on her behalf by her Mm. lawyers, but in her statement, she basically said, look, she's delighted with the reparations and the the healthcare for her son and herself for the rest of her life and all that kind of thing. But she said she wants people to know that she is not the only one that this has happened to. And we, we know from our own sort of history of this type of thing that, you know, uh, there will probably be many more cases that come out of this. Yeah. Right, Senegal, uh, we're going to go to next where, uh, oh God, this is a really tragic one, a fire and uh, 11 newborn babies. Yeah, uh, this is a story um, 
that relates to a town of uh, Tivoane. It's about 120 20 kilometres northeast of Dakar, so not in the capital itself, but in western Senegal. And a fire broke out. It's a very simple but very sad story. A fire broke out in a hospital here uh, on Wednesday last week and 11 newborn babies were killed. It happened in the incubation ward. Now, the civil security expert who went in and had a look uh, to see what caused the fire afterwards, he came out and he made a statement. And in that statement, which I'll read very quickly, if you don't mind, he basically gave the reasons for what happened. There are incubators, everything is electric, everything is plugged in, and there have been extension cords that are too full. So all it takes is for a short circuit to find an element such as plastic for a fire to start and then it develops quite quickly and there you have it from there um, he basically said so it was an electrical fault and as a result 11 newborn babies have, have died yeah uh, but it sounds though that like if loads of things are plugged into quadruple adapters etc yeah. that, that resources were pretty scarce anyway yeah, absolutely yeah. but what's frightening another aspect of this that's quite frightening it happened on Wednesday and two nurses have now been arrested uh, and I believe they've already been charged with uh, or they've, they've certainly been arrested I don't know if the charges have been put to them yet but for neglect children and endangering the lives of others and for me I don't know it's just a little bit too quick uh, for this to Mm, happen I don't know because you know lots of anger around it and lots of anger usually means bad decisions are taken very quickly Uh, but presumably there must be some sort of anger around just the state of healthcare services in general. Well, there really, is, yeah. uh, uh, because this isn't the first time this happened. There was a fire last year where four children were killed in another in another city. And there's ongoing problems, particularly around maternity uh, situations. Right, Zimbabwe we're going to go to next. And they want to, well, they're talking about at least reopening the ivory trade. They held a conference last week and it was basically full of people who were lobbying um, you know, representatives from various different across from various different countries around the world to reopen the ivory trade, right? So Zimbabwe is having a problem at the moment, and it's interesting because they held the conference in Hwange National Park, right? That's about half the size of Belgium, and it's an enclosed area where elephants roam free, right? Mm. So they, they've done really well in terms of conservation there. So 2014, I think there was 84,000, and it's gone up to 100,000 now, but it's causing a problem because there's too many elephants. They can only accommodate 50,000. Okay. And they can't get rid of them, right? And and what what I mean by getting rid of them is they can't export them to other countries who would maybe like to start an elephant population, that kind of thing. Um, but they're also sitting on $600 million worth of ivory, which they have to pay the security for and which they would like to get rid of. And they argue there's a market for it and it would pay for conservation if we were allowed to sell now, it. When you say it, this is ivory, that's... Already. Not connected to yeah. an elephant, uh, let's put it oh, that way. It is, but it's just that it happened. It's been in storage from before 1989 yeah, before the when yes. the ban came in. Okay. So there's still a market for it, like as we know. Now, the argument would be if you sell it, it opens up the idea yes, that indeed. ivory is valuable yeah. again. And so therefore, it's not a great idea. But the other side of it is it would pay for an awful lot of conservation and it would help certainly the communities as well that have been affected by elephants and are affected by elephants uh, in Zimbabwe in the, in the areas that look after them. Yeah, now, I mean, if, if, would this be a case of Zimbabwe itself unilaterally legalising the ivory trade again? or Because, uh, you know, there are international agreements in that kind of thing. No, I don't think it would be. I think what they're going to do is that this um, international agreement is a, the Convention on International Trade in Endangered Species of Wild Fauna and Flora, CETES it's called for short. Mm. They review that every year as far as I know. And I think this conference was a kind of um, warm-up 
for the lobbying that's right. going to take place okay. when that's reviewed later in the year. So there was countries that were invited, like China and Japan, but there were countries like Kenya and other countries that don't want to go near this that weren't invited. So they picked their, you know, they picked their um, invitation list uh, quite specifically. Right. So presumably there'd be a market in China for this. Kind oh, of huge. Thing. And Japan as well. Yeah. yeah. Right. Canada, we're going to go to next. Interesting one about uh, the moves to uh, Quebec specifically, I suppose, to protect the French language and restrict the use of English. Can you be yes. fined now in Quebec for saying something in English? Uh, I don't know if you can be fined as such, but but this is Bill 96. And what it's going to do, I think the biggest part of it is that it's going to limit the use of English in the legal system. And it caps enrolment at English speaking schools as well. But the biggest element of it is it for new people arriving in Quebec. All right. So if you arrive there within six months, you've got to engage exclusively in French with the... Um, uh, with the um, Authority. Authority, with, yeah, sorry. Civil yeah. service, that, civil kind, of service, that yeah. kind of thing. Excuse, excuse me, mm. right? So there'd be exceptions in health and in emergency situations and that like th- that kind of thing. But effectively, you can be cut off if you don't go in and start speaking French to the social welfare or whatever it might be. Mm. And that's what it is. It's there to, they're saying now that the, the people who voted it through, and it did go through the uh, provincial parliament uh, by 78 to 29, they're saying, look, the French language is in decline in Quebec. And we need to protect it. And part of that problem is there's people coming in from outside and they're not speaking French. Um, so this is the reason for it. Yeah. And give, well, given the, 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 the majority there, would that, would that majority be reflected uh, around Quebec and around Canada? Well, yeah, it would be. Not around Canada. No way would it be reflected <laughs> around Canada. Um, but I know, no, I mean, there's nine million people live in Quebec. It makes up a quarter of the population of Canada. But judging by the people that they returned in the local elections, um, it mm. does, you know. Uh, it, it, yeah. yeah, also no protests against this. Oh, there was, oh God, there was protests. All right, all right. okay. Absolutely yeah. there yeah. was, but they were minority protests, if you like. And what, what's interesting about it, if, if we have time, is yeah. that obviously because this law is going to be brought in, it does go against you, what you might perceive as being minority rights in the, in the scheme of Canada as mm. a federal country, right? Um, but they have a thing there in Canada called the notwithstanding clause, right, which allows governments and local governments to pass legislation that stays on the books temporarily for five years, even if they know that it goes against the Bill of Human Rights. I think they call mm. it the Charter of Bills and Freedoms yeah. or something like that there. So they specifically have to say, OK, we know that this probably goes against the Constitution, but we're OK with that because we're going to use the notwithstanding clause and it'll go on the books for five years. And in the meantime, if we hold a provincial election, you can kick us out if you're not happy with this law. OK. That's so a, there you go. That's an interesting uh, mechanism. Right. So what should we look out for in the next uh, week or so? Yeah, a few things to look out for. On Wednesday, uh, Sergei Lavrov is off to Saudi Arabia. And I'm really curious to know what he's going to be chatting about to them. And I doubt it'll have something to do with oil, but I don't know what the angle is uh, on yeah. it. But I, so that's why I was curious about it. On Wednesday, there's a referendum. So we know about Finland and Sweden and NATO and all that kind Indeed. of thing. Yeah. And on Wednesday, a referendum in Denmark on an opt-out that they had with the EU um, military defence cooperative. They took that 30 years ago to stay out of that. They looked like they might vote to join it now okay. and become an opt-in uh, in that particular part. And then on Saturday in Hong Kong, uh, there will be a candlelit vigil to remember Tiananmen Square. Now, over the years, that particular date has caused huge trouble uh, in Hong Kong. So you can expect reports of more trouble from there if it is indeed allowed to go ahead. 
Jonathan, thanks a million as ever. Thanks Jonathan so. DeBurka Butler, there you are listening to the Moncrief Show on News Talk. Going to take a break. After that, how to get a really tiny house. Moncrief. Brought to you by Avant Money. Think you're getting the best value from your bank? Think again. Weekdays at 2 p.m. on News Talk.